about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. But if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. everybody, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, found on page 1,129 in the Pew Bible. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants, nor he who waters, is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness and again, The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. 
All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Well, hello again, friends. Keep that passage open. That would be a fantastic help. How about we pray together as we think about God's Word? Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, you love us more than we deserve. And Father, our vision is so often fixed on things that aren't you and your greatness and your glory. Father, we pray in these moments that you would quiet our hearts and that you would fix before us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake. Amen. Well, one of the phenomena in our recent history, I don't think is quite as new as it seems. Uh, the rise of Donald Trump, unexpected, unprecedented, perhaps unwanted by many, uh, is really something that isn't quite as new as it seems. A bombastic, overinflated man steps onto the stage and the angry people flock. People who feel like they are powerless and insignificant, forgotten by today's world fill their vision with a powerful, influential, significant person. If they can't be, then they'll find someone who is. Here's what one of the Republicans I've been reading says about Donald Trump. Mr. Trump's supporters don't care about his agenda. They are utterly captivated by his persona. They view him as the strongest, most dominant most assertive political figure they have ever seen. And they applaud his will to power. A bit scary, isn't it? But I think as we look at this little case of something happening in another country, we do see a little piece of our own hearts. It isn't such a new thing. People all over the world who feel powerless and insignificant, who feel forgotten, always gravitate to people of power and significance to feel their sense of inadequacy. It's an ancient thing that just continues to happen over and over and over again. It's a man-centric antidote to the problem of our powerlessness. And it's a problem that we see in Corinth that Paul is dealing with. The culture there is to find an influential, magnificent, rhetorical man or woman and to flock beneath their influence and power and to bask in who they are. And that culture infects the church and Paul sees that as toxic. And in view of their man-centric view of church life and of culture, 
In chapter 3, he bombards them with a magnificent vision of the living God. What he seeks to do is almost eclipse men in their eyes by such an entrancing view of what God is doing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to make four stops on the way through this passage. The first is we're going to linger a little bit over the problem as Paul sees it in Corinth. And then we're going to look at the three solutions he gives. Okay? And the three solutions are he thinks they need a bigger view of God's work, a bigger view of God's church, and a bigger view of Christ's lordship. But before we get there, let's have a bit more of a think about the problem. Have a look at verse 1. Paul gets straight to the point, and this is fantastic because he's been building up to this for a few chapters, and right here he lays straight in with the problem. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. The Corinthians took pride in their spiritual position, in being spiritual people, in being powerful in their faith. But Paul, having talked in the last chapter of what it means to be spiritual, turns around to them and says, you know, you guys, you guys aren't spiritual at all. You're worldly. He digs the boot even further in by calling them little children, infants. You guys are just toddlers, he says. I'm giving you milk because you haven't got to the bananas yet, the mashed up banana thing. That doesn't work for you yet, so I've got to keep giving you the milk. You know, could he be more patronizing at this point? All right. Childish, toddlers, young, immature. That's what he says about the Corinthians. But what does he mean? What is he saying? Well, it appears that in the church, there is too much of Corinth and much too little of Christ. There is too much of the world and too little of the mind of Christ. And the symptom that Paul sees in verse 3 is their quarreling and jealousy. You see, the quarreling and the jealousy are to Paul a mark of a deeper problem, of a deeper underlying failure in their hearts. They're acting like mere men, not spiritual men and women. And what Paul's getting at here is that the Corinthians have had a fundamental failure of what I want to call gospel imagination. The gospel of the crucified Lord Jesus is to touch every aspect of their life together. Every aspect of their individual beings. Rather than letting their culture and their backstory and their connections dictate who they are, they are to let Christ. It's a little like this. Recently, I was at uh, the Brett Whiteley Gallery in Surrey Hills, the eccentric artist. Go have a look. It's free. He tells a story, or he did when he was alive, of a moment he had in a Presbyterian church in Parramatta. He was a teenage boy. Uh, I don't know why he was there. But as he was leaving the church, he saw on the ground a book about Van Gogh, that great, magnificent artist of such works as these. And he studied this book as a teenage boy and filled his mind with these images. And he describes finding this book as, a, as, an, as an epiphany. He never knew you could see the world with such color and movement and life like Van Gogh saw it. 
He describes going on the bus on the way home and seeing trees out the window and seeing them move in a way he'd never seen before. His encounter with Van Gogh shifted the imagination of his heart. And that eventually found its way onto the canvas, found its way onto everything that he did. It recolored his world, every aspect of it. You see, for Paul, an encounter with the Lord Jesus is to have a similar effect. It's so to recolor all the imagination of your heart in every aspect, in every work and money and relationship and all the little things of life individually and life together. And what Paul sees in their quarreling is a failure of their gospel imagination. They say, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. They follow after mere men. They've let men become the center of their view. And for Paul, that is a problem. Before we look at the solution, the three solutions he gives, two things for you to think about. The first is, where do you think for you your gospel imagination begins to fade? And what area of your life, or your life with others, or your life at home, or your life in church, do you think the cross begins to wane in its influence upon you? Where does culture grow big and Christ grow small? What point is that for you? That's worth identifying, because that's what Paul is going after here. That's what he's going after in the whole of Corinthians, really. He's setting up for us to remake our imagination with the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Where is that for you? But the second thing I want to say is, I wonder if the specific problem of the Corinthians is ours as well. They're quarreling in jealousy. They're dividing into factions amongst them. Their gravitation toward powerful, influential people among them, to man-made things instead of the things of God. You know, this church, I love this church. Um, it has four very diverse congregations. They are so different from one another. It's fantastic to go between them every week. But our temptation is to look at what we have and demand it of the other parts of our network. To trust in the man-made part of who we are. The outer bit. And not the core bit that God is doing in all our congregations. That God wants to do in all our suburbs that God wants to do in all our hearts, with all we are. There might be smaller things, things about the way church is. There might be people flocking to people within the church. Paul calls this out as worldliness and not worthy of the church of God. It's a call for us to rejoice in our diversity, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So what are the three solutions? The first one Paul gives in verse 5 and a little bit after is that the, to eclipse this view of men, he says we need a bigger view of God's work among us, as Corinth did. He starts to play around with the idea of leaders and who they actually are and whether they're powerful. Have a look. Verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? These powerful, influential personas who you're gravitating toward, these men, only servants. 
only servants. Not powerful, influential personas. People who serve among us. You see, he's flipping it on its head straight away. Not only that, but he says, these servants whom, through whom you came to believe, they were assigned the task by the Lord. What they've been given isn't even from them, it's from God. It's a God-given task. It's a God-dependent task, this task of being a leader in a church. It's not about them. It's about God. He says, you know, Paul, he says, I, I planted the church, planted the seed. He's talking about himself planting the church in Corinth. And Apollos watered it. Apollos came as a preacher and preached to them and built them up. But guess what? God made it grow. The power in the church does not reside in the men or women who lead in it, but in the Lord who grows it. He is the one that makes it spring up from the soil. He is the one that helps it have life at all. He is the only one who can bring things back to life. He is the one who grows his church. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're not anything. But only God who makes things grow. You know, this church in 2002 was one congregation of 40 people. These days, that's how many kids we have down at Urco. And from one congregation, three congregations have been planted. God has been doing an incredible thing here. And he's continuing to do it. But who grew this church? God did. He grew this church. It's his church. It grew in his power, by his strength, in his spirit. And there have been some fantastic, what Paul would call, co-workers. Some people who've come alongside in humility and grace with godliness, preaching God's word and praying to him incessantly. But they didn't grow it. He did. Paul is calling the Corinthians to have a bigger view of what God does in the church and a lower view of what men do. Sure, he says they're going to be rewarded for their labor in verse 8 and their fellow workers, but God grows his church. I think if we take that point seriously, we need to be extraordinarily, unceasingly, unashamedly, persistently calling on him to grow his church, to grow this church, to grow all of our churches, to grow all the church plants around us. There's no other reason no other church growth strategy than to call upon his name. His is the power. But it's not just a bigger view of God's work that the Corinthians need, according to Paul. They need a bigger view of what God's church is. See, there's this little shift in perspective that happens through this passage. The Corinthians are focused on the who, on the, the impressiveness of the person. But Paul says, don't worry about the who. You have to worry about the how. The how of leadership, not the who of leadership. You see, he says in verse 10, you know, by the grace of God, um, um, I have laid a foundation as an expert builder, right? There's a shift in analogy here. We, talk, we talked about growing stuff. Now we're talking about 
building stuff, right? They're two analogies that I know nothing about, but they're both here. He shifts to talking about being a builder now, a master builder. And then what he says, now someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. It's not about who, it's about how. And it's worth going to the side for a moment and just saying that this passage and what it says about judgment is first of all aimed at leaders of the church. It's aimed at me and Roger, Roger and Sally first. Then it is aimed at you. Because it's about leaders in God's church and what God expects from them. But at the same time, we're all involved in building God's church, and so it's still applicable to us, but maybe in a slightly different way. Paul says, so each one should be careful how he builds. The foundation is Jesus Christ in verse 11, but what what can be built on that foundation? Well, he has this whole range of things from the very firm and immovable to the very flimsy and, well, flammable. And what he says is, People building on this foundation of the Lord Jesus with all these different types of materials. But one day, every part will be tested with fire. It may be difficult to tell what it's like, but one day when it's thrown in a furnace, which is a place when you get to determine whether something is flimsy or solid, it will be seen for what it is. This imagery of fire, is an, it's the imagery of examination, of testing, of finding out what something really is. The day will bring it to light, says Paul. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. You see, it is God to choose how good the building is. Men don't get to choose how good their leaders are. Ultimately, God will have a decisive word on what they have done. There's a description then of some people who suffer loss. Their salvation isn't taken from them, because that comes from the Lord Jesus, not from what we do, but from what he does for us. But they escape as one through the flames. What they have and what they built comes to nothing which is a sobering thought for someone like me. But the question is, why is God so harsh? We just talked about how God builds his church. He's the one who makes it grow. He's the power in it. Men are just kind of the structure around it. They're just kind of the the getting things done people on the ground. But he's the one who makes it grow. So why should he be so harsh if people aren't determinate in the end? And this is where Paul kind of expands our view of what God's church is. In verse 16, he says, Don't you know who you are? You yourselves are God's temple. And God's spirit lives in you. You see, the judgment on God's leaders is a result of the value of of who God's people are. They are his dwelling place. They are the place where he dwells. So valuable is his church, so intimate his connection to them, that he dwells in and with them. 
that are, to our ears that may not seem as incredible. We've grown up with Disney and the idea that God is inside you always. But in an ancient culture, the only place on earth where you could meet God was the temple. It was the place where the transcendent meet the imminent. And when you walked in there, you should be careful what you did. Because if the living God was there, and you did something he didn't like, then you would need to answer to him. It was a sacred place. And God says, God's people are that sacred place now. That remarkable place where he himself dwells. This is the identity marker that Paul uses through the rest of Corinthians. He'll come back to it when he's talking about sexuality, and he'll come back to it again when he talks about the uh, culture within church. This is the central thing. You've got to know this. You've got to know how valuable you are to God, how significant you are to Him. That is why the leaders are judged so harshly. Because you are valuable to God. If anyone destroys God's temple, verse 17, God will destroy For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. It's not about who builds. It's about how they build. Because the church is is where the living God dwells. In the power of the Spirit. So the question I get when I get to the end of that bit is I go, well, how do I build with gold instead of hay? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, I think Paul's actually been demonstrating this already through the whole letter. You see, the way you build with gold is by provoking each other's gospel imagination. It's by letting the cross, the Roman cross of the Lord Jesus, recolor each other's world. It's by a ministry that focuses on Christ to such an extent that it shapes people around. It's not based on men's power and strength or women's power and strength but upon the cross and upon the new life that springs from it. And though not everyone here is a leader, everyone here is building in some way. It's part of the body of Christ. How will you build? How will you provoke the people around you to draw near to the power of the cross and to live a new life in imagination? The third thing I think is the most significant here. That's where Paul gets the most fun in the way he describes it. The, The third thing we need is a magnificent enlarged, incredible view of the Lordship of Christ. Only a large view of His Lordship and power can ultimately shift our trust of men onto God. And that's where he goes now. He says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. We come back to that point again that the cross of the Lord Jesus turns everything on its head. 
The lordship of Christ means all human power and leadership is coming to its end. Do you notice that he used the phrase, this age, this ending time? Because Christ has become Lord, and therefore all that is wisdom in this world is coming to an end. What he then does is quote two different places of Psalm and Job, passages about how God will come and overthrow human powers, overthrow unjust, unjust structures. Throw them aside, because that's what the Lordship of Christ will bring. He'll catch the wise in their craftiness. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile, and he will throw them aside. He says to the Corinthians, why are you holding on to the values of Corinth? Because it's, it's about to end. Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of that is about to be thrown to the side. But it's hard, isn't it? Hard to really grasp that in your heart. Hard to really trust when you walk into church that it's his power and not men and women. Hard to see the reality of what God is doing in his spirit among us. Hard to really understand that the people around us and the power around us is actually going to end. This is hard. We depend on ourselves and upon people more than we know. And with that in mind... Paul opens for us the magnificence of Christ's lordship. As this, as this passage ends, he turns the whole game on its head. You see, the Corinthians are pointing around going, I belong to Paul. Paul kind of waves his finger and says, Nuh-uh, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He says, you don't belong to Paul. Paul belongs to you. You don't belong to Apollos. Apollos belongs to you. You don't belong to Cephas because he already belongs to you. Not life or death or the present or the future. And you're like, oh, wow, this escalated quickly. What is he talking about here? Well, the key is in the end. All are yours. Why? Because you are of Christ. We are of and we belong to the Lord of all things. Everything in this world belongs to him. Every leaf and every star, every instant, every future, every past, every life, every soul, it all belongs to him. Everything is his. He is Lord of everything. And that means we don't need to attach ourselves to certain people because everything they are already is a servant for us. It belongs to him. It serves his purposes and therefore it serves us. Why just grab onto Paul when Paul and Cephas are yours already? Why pretend that there's only a circle of believers that you actually agree with when God has gifted us with an array of people and serves us in them all? Why be afraid of the present or the future or the past when God, your Lord in Christ, owns them all? Why be afraid of death which opens the way to life? All things are yours because you belong to Christ. 
There is nothing in your life that can separate you from him. And there is nothing in your life that he cannot use for his glory in you. You see, it's only a view of Christ's lordship that big that can start to provoke your gospel imagination. It's only when Christ is in charge of all things in that way and all men and all reality that suddenly you can work into the workplace and stop thinking about men and start thinking about him. It's only when his lordship is that big that when you walk into uni, you can think about him and not them. It's only when you walk into the bank with a lordship that big that decisions start to change. It's only when we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler of all things that our imagination can begin to change. So as we conclude, let me ask that same question again. Where does your gospel imagination start to fail? When is it that the world of men and their influence and their power inside the church and outside the church starts to take over and your Christ gets little? Because a gospel-shaped vision sees not our insignificance in the world, but Christ's high significance. It sees not our impotence, but his almighty power. It sees not a world against us, but a world that belongs to Christ and therefore serves him in all things and in all ways. Take your moment of fail and let the view of God's work and God's church and Christ's lordship eclipse it and remake it and reshape it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would so know your lordship in our hearts, that we would so know your power, that we would not gravitate toward people in your church, but to you, and not be forced into the boxes by our culture, but instead live out your lordship in all ways and in all things. Father, when we feel insignificant, help us look to Christ's significance. When we feel powerless, show us his power. When we don't know what to do, help us see Christ enthroned above all. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.